Welcome to EAN Cast, your weekly source for education, research, and updates from the European Academy of Neurology. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our weekly EAN podcast. My name is Barbara Tettenborn. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of eLearning of the European Academy of Neurology. And for the summer weeks, we thought we produce specials about neurological diseases and traveling. And today we start with epilepsy and traveling. So on my side today for this topic are Simona Balestrini and Marian Galovich, both associate editors of our editorial board. Simona is Associate Professor of Child Neurology and Psychiatry at the Neuroscience Department, Children's Hospital and University of Florence in Italy. And she's also consultant neurologist at the Chalfont Center for Epilepsy and Senior Clinical Research Fellow at UCL Queen Square Institute of Neurology in London. And also with us today is Marian Galovic. Uh, he is working at the Department of Neurology at the University Hospital in Zurich in Switzerland and currently head of the epilepsy unit there. Besides that, he is chair of the International League Against Epilepsy Career Development Commission and past chair of the International League Against Epilepsy Young Epilepsy Section. So hello, Simona and Marian. Good morning. Hello. Thank you for taking time today for our podcast. Um, we always try to include uh, epilepsy patients in our regular daily life as much as possible. And our goal in treating and caring for people with epilepsy is always to enable them to have a fulfilling life. And I personally believe that for most people, traveling is possibly part of that. But there are some issues which have to be raised and which we will discuss today. So I start with my first question to probably both of you. Should people with epilepsy travel at all? Is there a general recommendation you can give to people with epilepsy regarding traveling? So, yes, that's a very important question. And my answer would be yes, of course, people with epilepsy can travel. But it would be important that we have uh, a, a discussion with them, so to address all the specific uh, adjustment they may need in order to travel. Uh, every person with epilepsy is different, so they may have different level of uh, uh, severity in terms of their seizure presentation, different level of um, seizure control and frequency, and also uh, different medication they may need to take. Of course. One consideration, the first consideration is about the destination of traveling, because, of course, every destination may have uh, uh, specific um, requirements. Um, we should consider also the, um, the time zone and uh, we should consider the, um, the, the, the way they would travel, for example, if they need to take a flight. Um, and uh, also that we need to consider their comorbidity. So uh, really our advice should be tailored on their uh, specific uh, disease profile. So you think it's like an individually tailored process uh, to plan the travel more than other people have to without uh, epilepsy? I would think so. I would think so. And then perhaps, Marian, we could discuss each single aspect, if you agree. Yeah, I think we go through it uh, point by point and uh, maybe we start with the flying. What about flying? Are there special recommendations you give to people with epilepsy and their caregivers regarding the flights? And are you aware of any airlines which have special requests regarding people with epilepsy? I hope there aren't, but I, I'm afraid there might be. <laughs> That's an excellent question, Barbara. 
and people with epilepsy may be a bit anxious before uh, boarding a flight. But to be honest, I have not experienced any major problems in my uh, patients who have epilepsy who are embarking on flights. And particularly if the epilepsy is well controlled, I wouldn't expect any major problems. And I think most airlines would not even require medical clearance for people with epilepsy who have well controlled epilepsy to board the airplane. Um, although there are some guidelines that they may need to follow. Um, so they, they may need to require medical clearance if they had a convulsive seizure uh, within 24 hours before boarding a flight. Um, but in people who are well controlled, this is usually not required. But every airline is a bit different. Uh, so in people with epilepsy who have frequent seizures, um, I recommend them to actually get in touch with their airline and tell them about the epilepsy because, uh, because the airline may want to get in touch with them um, ahead of travel to discuss any safety instructions. And what I also tell them usually is to take the medication on board with them. So this is okay in most countries, um, and it is also allowed to take liquids in the hand luggage, because in some cases the hold luggage may get lost or may arrive late, and this could sort of provoke seizures if they don't get their medication on time. Um, but they will obviously need to carry their prescriptions or even a medical certificate uh, for their medications with them, uh, in order to be able to take the medication in their hand luggage. And then we have a couple of patients who have neurostimulation, like vagal nerve stimulation or deep brain stimulation. And usually it's not recommended for them to use airport scanners. It is probably safe, but the device producers recommend them not to use these scanners. And so they may want to opt for a pat-down check instead. Yeah, I think that's a very important advice. Uh, first, to inform the airline beforehand to ask for special requirements, and second, uh, to to use a different check-through. <laughs> uh, uh, if you have a long flight, uh, there might be time zone changes during the flight, uh, and once you embark from the uh, flight, you might be in a totally different time. So how to handle the medication when changing the time zones? Do you have any rule of thumb? Some I, I know a few, and they are quite difficult, so you have to calculate a lot, but I think there are probably easier things uh, to handle that problem. Yes, so I think the the main requirement they maintain as as much as possible the same uh, time interval between each, each administration of medication. So that is what usually I recommend to patients. So of course they need the adjustment. So for example, if they take the medication every, let's say uh, six or eight hour, they should try to adjust the uh, medication intake according to Uh, that hour. So they need to keep the original, let's say, uh, uh, time zone uh, to keep taking the medication around the same time. And then, of course, if they arrive to destination and that adjustment requires, let's say, they waking up in the middle of the night, then even if they delay or take the medication a bit earlier by one or two hours, that usually doesn't have a major impact. So again, I think I really always advise the patient, depending on their specific kind of uh, habit, intake their medication, and as Marian said, depending also on their uh, level of seizure control. But let's say if there's a time change of uh, 12 hours, so it's a complete change of day and night, uh, and uh, if the people stay for two or three weeks, do you recommend uh, like a slowly adaption to the new time zone, one hour every day, like our biorhythm might do it uh, as with the sleeping, or what do you do then? 
I think 12 hours is actually relatively easy because if they take the medication twice a day, um, then they just take their morning dose. Um, so what they need to do is, um, while they're traveling, to take another dose of medication in the middle of their travels. Um, it gets more tricky if um, there's smaller time zone change. Um, so if it's around three to six hours, that gets slightly trickier. And it depends whether they're traveling west or east. So when they're traveling west, um, the days get longer artificially. And when they're traveling east, the days get shorter. So if they stick to their regular routine, um, they need, may need to take more or less of their regular medication. So for example, if, if one of my patients travels west and they stay for a longer time, um, they may need to take some additional medication depending on um, what the time zone difference is. If the time zone difference is around three to six hours, I usually re uh, recommend them to take uh, a quarter of their daily dose in addition to their normal dose um, when they arrive at the destination. And if the time zone difference is more than six hours, I usually re recommend to take half their daily dose in addition to the usual dose when they arrive at the destination. But this is more or less a rule of thumb, um, but it worked reasonably well for my patients. That sounds good, thank you. <laughs> uh, so I think that there will be a lot of help for our listeners uh, for advising people with epilepsy on traveling. Uh, we live in a progressively heating world and the effects of climate change have more and more impact on all of us. Is there a special impact of heat on seizures and what do people with epilepsy have to keep in mind if traveling into countries with very high temperatures? Thank you. Yes, that's a very important question. And unfortunately, it does not only apply to people who are traveling, because I think we are all experiencing the impact of climate change in our daily lives. And, and actually, um, there is now a lot of also research work to really understand what's the impact of the uh, change in climate around the world and in people with any health condition, but also we are specifically focusing on people with epilepsy. So we do know for certain already that there are some specific epilepsy etiologies that are more susceptible to the change in temperature. And one example is, for example, an epilepsy due to a, a mutation in a sodium channel gene, uh, the epilepsy is Dravet syndrome. And typically, this type of epilepsy starts with seizure triggered by uh, fever and by also increase external temperature, so not only internal temperature. And this uh, epilepsy is a severe uh, type of epilepsy syndrome. It's an epileptic encephalopathy. Uh, and then it evolves with also other seizure types, not only precipitated by high temperature and also with uh, uh, intellectual disability and other important comorbidities. But it's not only this, the uh, example of uh, epilepsy precipitated by high temperature. There are other uh, genetic epilepsies that we know uh, they are um, severely impacted by um, not only increased temperature, sometimes even just really sudden changes in temperature. And that's what is happening in our world because we know that there are really more uh, severe variation in, in temperature and there are also more extreme climate events. And of course, this may be of danger to people with epilepsy. So our first really basic recommendation should be to try to uh, keep the temperature Uh, as stable as possible. So, for example, use air conditioning. So we, we need to do that if it's too hot. Hydration, especially if people travel to exotic destinations where temperature can be very high uh, and wet, um, and there is wet uh, um, climate. Um, 
we don't know yet how increased temperature may affect drug bioavailability. That's another factor that is being investigated because, of course, bioavailability of drugs may change according to different uh, body temperature and this uh, different level of hydration. So that's something that, of course, one should consider at some point. But at the moment, we don't have um, specific recommendation according to that. Uh, and then, of course, one should try to uh, ensure that access to, let's say, emergency service should be um, maintained in case of extreme uh, climate event. And of course, this may not be predictable, and we experience similar things during the pandemic, but that's another factor we should consider uh, in this kind of climate emergency. So I would summarize this as the main factors, and lots of work is being put now into these to really try to understand how we can uh, uh, also advise and give recommendation to our patients with epilepsy in the context of uh, uh, climate change. Yeah, very important information. I think a lot of that actually applies to everybody of us, not only for the patients, but also for all of us to keep cool uh, in every sense <laughs> and uh, yeah, to drink enough if it's really getting warm uh, and also to take care that the medication doesn't get too hot. Uh, I think that's another topic that uh, some medications are probably not so prone to be ruined by heat, but others might, might suffer from too high temperatures uh, when taking with you. So be aware that uh, medication is kind of room temperature on a climate air conditioned room. And the other aspect, sorry, I forgot, is sleep. We also know there is good evidence that uh, uh, climate temperature, climate changes, and especially high temperature may affect sleep. And then that becomes a vicious circle because we know how sleep is essential in people with epilepsy. Uh, so, of course, we should recommend to try to uh, keep the sleep condition as comfortable as possible. As again, which is also true for all of us. Marianne? That's an important point, Simona, because it's not only um, the climate, the local climate, but also jet lag that may play a role. So if there are differences in time zones, uh, this is also another factor um, that may be important for people with an epilepsy, particularly in those who have genetic syndromes who may be um, very uh, prone to having seizures after sleep deprivation. Um, so in these cases um, where we expect there may be some jet lag or a time zone difference, um, there may be necessary to recommend some prophylactic treatment for example, we use Clobazam for a couple of days in our patients. They may start this um, even slightly before their flight like or on the day of flying and then continue this for a couple of days after they land at their destination. So this will give them some additional protection. Um, but what I found interesting is that there was a recent study in brain that showed that it's not only sleep deprivation, but really changes in the uh, wake and sleep cycle. So any change in, in, in time zone may actually provoke seizures, even if people sleep enough. So even if they manage, for example, to, to sleep on their planes. And this can be also seen in the Arctic. So there is some very interesting research uh, done in the Arctic. So they have these huge fluctuations in day and night. Um, and during the times when the days get massively longer, so that, that's usually during April, May, June, uh, people are much more prone to having seizures or status epilepticus. And that just shows us how big of an impact sleep and sleep deprivation and, and the wake and sleep cycles may have in some people with epilepsy. 
very interesting point. Thank you, Marian, uh, for that. Uh, so, there can something happen, of course, uh, on traveling. Should people with epilepsy apply for special health care cover for their traveling abroad, or do they need special travel insurance? Do you think so? Uh, yes, so this is something uh, um, uh, we always discuss with uh, with our patients who wish to travel. Uh, we, I always uh, advise to check with the embassy of uh, uh, the patient where they are going to see what their requirements are. Usually, for example, if they travel in Europe, they have access to emergency services. They have free access. But of course, they may also want to uh, have a travel insurance because that ensure um, more coverage, especially when, again, um, we are facing people with more severe condition and with comorbidities, then I think it's always important to have a travel insurance would they may cover them in case of uh, uh, any sort of complication. Hmm. Very good. Uh, so what are the risks in case of gastrointestinal or other infections when traveling abroad? There is I suppose an increased risk in some countries. So do you have epilepsy patients have to take special care of that? Yes. So people with epilepsy should um, not expose themselves to um, unwashed uh, foods or to um, tap water that may be contaminated in some countries. And if they cannot ingest the tablets reliably, uh, that may cause problems and seizures. So in these cases, in the worst case, they may need IV medication if they cannot ingest the tablets. And I usually also recommend as a rule of thumb if um, a person with epilepsy um, takes a tablet, but if vomiting occurs within around 30 minutes of the intake of the medication, it's usually recommended for them to take the medication again because it probably it wasn't um, sufficiently taken up by the body. Very helpful advice. Uh, and another health care problem sometimes is that uh, traveling to certain countries requires specific vaccinations or even malaria prophylaxis. And that can be even troublesome for people without epilepsy. Now, are there also special requirements for people with epilepsy? Uh, what is safe for them? Yes, so, so that's a very... Um important point as well. So um, travel vaccination can protect again infection disease uh, when visiting some countries and uh, um, I can say generally that most vaccine will not affect um, seizures or uh, uh, interact with the uh, seizure medication but I think uh, um, that uh, again this need to be really weighted in against the individual profile so I think it's always important to have a specific discussion for example some uh, uh, anti-malarial uh, medication can trigger seizure and are not suitable for people with epilepsy um, and the, again there are some type of epilepsy that are more uh, um, uh, predisposed, let's say, to have seizure in the context of fever. So in those people, definitely vaccination are more important, but equally the reaction to vaccination may trigger a seizure. So um, I always have a discussion with the patient and sometimes also with the GP to discuss uh, which vaccine are uh, definitely essential in that specific patient. And also we uh, always discuss anti-malarial prophylaxis as needed uh, because, as I, as I said, not all uh, medication um, are suitable in people with epilepsy.
So it should always be discussed with the epileptologist before getting vaccination and uh, taking malaria prophylaxis, which is suitable. Yeah, I think it's important. And of course, uh, as for any person traveling, they should check what vaccination. There are some vaccination, of course, that are mandatory anyway. Yeah, yeah. then you have to take the risk anyhow. Now, coming as a last point, maybe to one of my favorite points, always uh, uh, trying to do as much sport as possible. So are there any specific activities or or sports uh, people with epilepsy should avoid while traveling? Are there any special risks? Most people with epilepsy can participate in many, many sports activities. Uh, But I'm particularly careful um, with swimming. And this is something I tell um, every epilepsy patient, uh, because swimming is the number one cause of um, severe epilepsy-related injuries and even death. Um, So I do not recommend to swim to people who have uncontrolled epilepsy or frequent seizures. Um, In those who have well-controlled seizures, swimming may be permissible, but this is um, only reasonable, I think, if they are accompanied by somebody when they're venturing into deep water. And um, this is obviously a risk that they need to carry themselves. So um, nothing in life is without risk, and in people with epilepsy, I guess swimming um, has one of the, or carries one of the highest risks uh, for injuries or even death. On the other hand, I like to tell them um, s- stories of uh, famous athletes with epilepsy, and uh, one of them is um, Imogen Clark. I think she she was a British uh, swimmer, and she was even very good. She she placed fourth at World Championships. And she had epilepsy and she even had seizures um, at the poolside. And um, her parents were told that she has to stop swimming because this was very dangerous. Unfortunately, uh, her seizures were then well controlled and it was okay for her to swim every day. So even people with epilepsy, in certain cases, uh, when they're supervised, um, can get into the pool. Um, but it very much depends on the individual situation. And another issue that's a bit tricky um, is scuba diving. This is a popular activity in many countries, and um, that's usually also not recommended in people with epilepsy, particularly those of uncontrolled seizures. And the regulations are very, very strict with scuba diving, so most of the diving authorities will not allow uh, for a person with epilepsy to dive. Um, and there is a small minority um, of these diving re- uh, authorities that may allow uh, people with epilepsy to dive, but only after long seizure-free intervals. So some say at least three years seizure freedom without medication. Others say even more than that, even five years seizure freedom without medication. So regulations are very, very strict. Yeah, thank you. I think we definitely need a, a special episode about sports and epilepsy, which will be coming soon, uh, sometime later in the year or beginning of next year. Well, that will be fun too. So it was a, a very interesting to talk to you today. Uh, I got a lot of inputs uh, for recommendations for people with epilepsy. I thank you very much for taking your time today and uh, have a nice rest of the day. Thank you. Bye-bye, Simona and Marian. Thank you. Thank you, Barbara. Have a good rest. Thank you, Mariam. This has been EANcast Weekly Neurology. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcatcher for weekly updates from the European Academy of Neurology. 
You can also listen to this and all of our previous episodes on the EAN campus to gain points and become an EAN expert in any of our 29 neurological specialties. Simply become an EAN individual member to gain access. For more information, visit ean.org membership. That's ean.org backslash membership. Thanks for listening. EANcast Weekly Neurology is your unbiased and independent source for educational and research-related neurological content. Although all content is provided by experts in their field, it should not be considered official medical advice.